1: I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. President Biden making news telling Bloomberg White House reporter Nancy Cook that he is convinced that Vladimir Putin has made the decision to invade Ukraine. He went on to describe what he calls misinformation by Russia-backed separatists, claiming Ukraine is planning to attack them. A false justification, as he said, to act against Ukraine. This is what the Biden administration has been warning of, the false flag operation that the president appears to think has already begun now this follows careful messaging earlier in the day by the biden administration overseas as we prepare to join a conversation with angela stent we want to walk you through a bit of what's happened today vice president kamala harris and secretary of state anthony blinken both speaking earlier at the annual munich security conference that you just heard president biden refer to secretary blinken as well says russia has already begun a false flag operation in ukraine
2: we are deeply concerned that that is not the path that uh, russia has embarked on and that everything that we're seeing including what you've described in the last uh, 24 48 hours is part of uh, a scenario that is already in play of creating uh, false provocations
1: and it brings us to another element of this story today the russian-backed head of the donetsk rebel government Announcing the mass evacuation of that city to Russia for fear of what he alleges will be an attack, as the president said, against the region by the Ukrainian military. Ukraine's military chief earlier saying it has no intentions and never has of invading separatist controlled areas, certainly not now. This is a very complex situation with enormous room for error. As we head into this long weekend, we're joined now by someone Bloomberg has been turning to for her extensive experience and insights. Angela Stent, professor of government and foreign service, director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, also author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the rest. Angela, thank you for being here. President Biden seems to know what's going on inside Vladimir Putin's head. He's convinced as we just heard, that there will be an invasion of Ukraine. Do you think he's right?
0: Well, they must have intelligence that leads them to this conclusion. I mean, we've been guessing about this now for weeks Uh, But what they're seeing on the ground and the increase in troops even over the past week, plus now um, everything he described with the Russians accusing the Ukrainians of trying to take back the Donbass region, evacuating or planning to evacuate 700,000 people from those two um, occupied territories in Ukraine, because, again, they claim that there's going to be an attack. I guess that really does lead to the conclusion uh, that they're going to use this as a pretext. I think one rule of thumb when you uh, listen to what the Russians say is they often accuse other people of doing what they themselves are going to do.
1: Fascinating. It's just interesting (laughs) that the White House has been projecting this, predicting this. For a couple of weeks now, uh, maybe more, the the idea of a false flag. We heard about the video, the fake video that they might put together. Now, more recently, in these Russia separatist controlled areas, the increase in in accounts of breaking the ceasefire. Is this how it whether this is it or maybe it comes later, Angela, is this how it begins?
0: I mean, it certainly could. And I also have just read accounts that they uh, that explosives explosives have been placed um, in various or around various public buildings in those occupied territories, yeah. which, again, if they went off, they would accuse uh, the, the Ukrainians of, of, of terrorism. This is how it could begin. Uh, so
1: why would Vladimir national Putin national do that? Why, why go ahead and do that when everyone's already told the world that it was going to happen? You know, the White House strategy was get ahead of this, prevent it from happening by, by, by exposing our intelligence. Yet Vladimir Putin is going to still continue to play the greatest hits no matter what we expect.
0: Well, you know, we, were, we always wondered whether all of these ultimatums that were given to the West were just a ploy. And we, we've just had the Russians again say, you didn't meet our demands, um, and this is now an excuse to do what they're doing. On the other hand, it's still some mixed signals, right? They're still saying uh, the Secretary Blinken and Minister Lavrov are going to meet um, on February the 24th although Blinken made clear that that's only going to happen if there's no war. So, yeah. And they're still saying that they don't, they don't intend to attack. So they're, they're really ramping up the tension. They're ramping up uh, the uncertainty about what they're doing. And this could still be part of a bluff. But if so, it's a pretty uh, expensive bluff and also a very dangerous bluff, uh, because, since we're now in the situation where we've had shelling of buildings and, uh, um, and some deaths as well.
1: What do you expect this weekend, and what is the gain of an invasion at this stage after this much time in the standoff? Vladimir Putin has the whole world waiting and listening to him as he apparently wanted. Doesn't he lose that the moment he invades?
0: Of course he does, Um, but if his goal is to subdue Ukraine, to control it, to get a government in Ukraine that's pro-Russian and that gives up any dream of moving westward, then this is, that would be the first step in doing that. Now, it could be extremely costly. Uh, I don't think Russia does not have enough troops Surrounding Ukraine to actually occupy Ukraine, you'd need hundreds of thousands of troops, more than that. But you could deliver a major military blow both in the Donbas region, but also to Kiev. Um, and, and if that overrides any hope of negotiating with the West, that's what they're going to do.
1: Tell me more about uh, what we just heard from President Biden, his posture and the way that we've heard messaging coming from this White House, not just here in Washington, but also from Munich today. Uh, With with great coordination to hear the president as we head into this weekend, say that Vladimir Putin has made up his mind and to suggest punishing sanctions are about to be imposed. Does that affect the conversation or any decision making by Vladimir Putin so far?
0: Well, so far, I don't think the talk of sanctions has really had any impact on him. Um, It is like President Biden stressed unity, and we've had unity. Um, And one assumes if there were a major invasion like the one that President Biden was talking about, there would be massive sanctions from the the US and many European allies would go along with some of them. I mean the German foreign minister today at Munich suggested that Germany would go along with those sanctions were there to be, you know, a massive invasion like that. So the message is unity. I'm more skeptical about, you know, in the longer run how how much that unity would last in terms of sanctions because you know sanctioning major Russian banks and things like that um, is going to affect our European allies more than it's going to affect us and it's going to affect them quite badly.
1: Speak to me more about that Angela Stent because there's there's so much vague conversation coming out of the government here about sanctions we're not going to get a bill out of the Senate and it's difficult to understand what exactly the White House and Treasury are prepared to do whether it's kicking Russia out of the SWIFT network, as we've heard from time to time. We're directly targeting Vladimir Putin. Is there a way that they can do that and, and try to, to 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 silo our European allies from the damage?
0: So they, nobody's really talking about throwing Russia out of the SWIFT system anymore, but they are talking about sanctioning these uh, uh, two or three major banks in Russia. Now, my understanding is that there are, would be some carve-outs for some companies uh, and countries in dealing with that, because if you sanction the major banks with which, you know, a lot of European countries do a lot of business, um, that really hurts them badly, too. So there could be this is, gets very complicated, but there could be some carve outs and um, then export controls. Mm-hmm. That's something else that we hear um, from uh, in the White House, uh, uh, not, you know, semiconductor parts making it more difficult for, you know, the, the Russian <laughs> industrial sector. <clears throat> To function, Um, so wide-ranging export controls, yeah, Um, uh, sanctions on individuals, um, people you know close to Putin with bank accounts in the West, but we've already had that since 2014, and that doesn't seem to have had much of an impact on the policy. Um, And then the last one is sanctioning the Russian energy industry, which I think is in some of those congressional bills. But that, I think, is very hard to imagine that they could pull that off.
1: Angela, we're out of time, but I have to ask you what I heard you asked on Bloomberg surveillance just about a week or two ago, (laughs) and that is, is Vladimir Putin winning?
0: And, you know, it, it appears at the moment that he is winning because... I was
1: afraid you were going to yeah. say that. That was your answer a week or two ago. Angela Sten, Professor of Government Foreign Service, Director of the Center for Eurasian-Russian-East European Studies at Georgetown. Her book, Putin's World. I guess we're just living in it. Thanks, Angela, for being with us. We assemble the panel next. Rick and Jeannie, our signature panel on a Friday. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg
0: You know, it's ironic that what Mr. Putin did not want to
3: see happen was a stronger NATO on his flank, And that's exactly what he will see going forward.
1: Stop this hysteria about the intentions of Russia in the region.
0: There's only one country, one country with 150,000 troops on the border poised to attack. And that country is Russia.
1: This is our sovereign right to think about our security, national security, and also to have
0: our troops where we believe they are important. There is only one country, one country making threats here. It is Russia.
1: Thanks for joining us the Friday edition of Bloomberg Sound on the fastest hour in politics with deep concerns about what's going to happen over this looming weekend here. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington as we assemble the panel with headlines crossing the terminal based on what we heard live together from President Biden in the last hour. Biden says convinced that Putin has decided to invade Ukraine. The question came from Bloomberg's own Nancy Cook. The first question asked today in the Roosevelt Room at the White House. And we've got the signature panel with us. I'd love to hear what everyone thinks about this. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Chanzano and Rick Davis. Jeannie, to have the president come out and say that he is now convinced. We've been hearing warnings from this White House for weeks that an attack, or an invasion of some sort could be imminent. They're, they're leaning all the way into this now. Why not just add the sanctions?
4: Well, that that's a big question. I think what a sobering assessment by the president. And, uh, you know, as we head into this President's Day weekend in the United States, and I think what was particularly chilling was he said that they will target, or, or the United States believes that they will target the Ukrainian capital. And this is coming, you know, not that long after we heard the Ukrainian defense minister continue to say that they don't believe that some of this is as imminent or likely as the United States is saying. So, you know, I think one of the big questions is, you know, what is the intelligence that's leading to this conclusion?
1: Well, the Olympics are over, Rick. I guess uh, a couple of weeks ago, that was the idea that that Putin would would wait for the Olympics to wrap up here. And we're already seeing signs, according to the administration, of this false flag operation beginning. So is this it?
3: It could be. I mean, I certainly believe uh, when the president of the United States tells us that uh, Vladimir Putin has decided to invade uh, and his intelligence is accurate. I mean, we hope this time intelligence would be wrong, but um, uh, certainly he sounded like he had a lot of conviction around it. So, uh, yeah. look, uh, we've been wondering uh, when somebody was going to actually say the obvious, which is Vladimir Putin actually gets to do whatever he wants to do. The sanction threat has not kept him from deploying additional forces and mm-hmm. ratcheting up the, uh, the psychops, and And that's where we find ourselves today.
1: Well, you know, I'm just watching the, the the room as we were we were looking at the the cameras here, Rick, before the president came out. And you've got the podium, you know, and the two doors, you know, where he was in the White House, and you're just imagining what is happening behind those closed doors. We will, we, unless you're in the room, uh, let's say he's in the Oval Office, you have no idea what he's hearing, and in many cases, uh, it's things that would that would but would terrify you. He knows so much more than we do about this. Uh, he's staying at the White House this weekend. And I know part of that is to work on the State of the Union address, uh, Rick. But is it is this a, an up-all-night kind of weekend at the White House, uh, planning for contingencies?
3: Yeah, this is the actual 3 a.m. call that we always talk about in politics. Yeah. Is the president ready to take one, and what will he do? Uh, he'll spend time in the Situation Room. This is what will connect him to his national security foreign policy team that are spread out all over Europe right now. I mean, these aren't people huddled around with him right now. They're actually the shock troops in Europe trying to keep NATO together and apply as much pressure as they can to, uh, to Russia to try and get an outcome here that is anything short of war. He's got
1: his vice president, Jeannie, uh, uh, in, in uh, Munich, along with the secretary of state. This, uh, the, the, the secretary of defense also deployed overseas. Uh, it does feel like this administration is about as spread out as it can be in conversations, active conversations with our allies. It's a peculiar uh, footprint to have right now if, if this invasion begins, having everyone spread around the world.
4: Th- that's right. And, and you know, it, it's fascinating also because while President Biden is going to be staying at the White House this weekend, the United States has been pressing the uh, president of the Ukraine, Zelensky, to stay in Kiev. And yet he has still said, and this could change, that he's going to travel to the security conference. He wants to show that life continues as normal and they aren't panicking. So there's quite a juxtaposition there between what President Biden is planning to do and what President Zelensky has said, at least, that he will do. And again, that right could change any moment, of course. But, you know, it suggests what has been this real sort of divergence between the West and the United States versus Ukraine and their sort of attempt to show that this is, you know, life goes on as somewhat normal, even as we see all of this shelling and bombing that's occurring on the eastern flank.
1: Yeah, these headlines are really something, Rick. More than 40 violations of the ceasefire agreement yesterday, apparently. What are you going to be watching for in the next couple of days to tell the difference between this and what actually could be the, the prelude or the the initial phases of an invasion?
3: Well, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Because Russia has gotten very good at creating disinformation all over mm-hmm. the world. And we're getting it here, too, right? I mean, our Internet is full of uh, false reports on attacks uh, within the uh, Russian community living in Donetsk. other places by the ukrainians so it's going to be very hard to tell what the trigger is and i don't think any event will actually trigger this it's just whatever vladimir putin's timetable is he presses go
1: yeah it's a concern when you don't have the intelligence on the ground either to tell us what's happening in real time rick and Jeannie will be with us for the hour on sound on coming up russia and ukraine are not the only things on the president's mind right now as we'll discuss with bloomberg supreme court reporter greg store this is bloomberg the Russia-Ukraine conversation may be keeping the lights on late at the, light of the White House, but it's not the only one happening in the executive mansion. Reporters have been trying for days to get clues on President Biden's process of picking a Supreme Court nominee, and today was no exception.
2: Here's what it's Did you about. accidentally leave off of the week ahead the president's interviews of Supreme Court, Supreme <laughs> Court candidates? Uh...
0: Very good. I was like, I may, I'm thinking, maybe I left something off. Uh, well, I can tell you that um, February is not that much longer. It's 10 days, if my math is correct. Uh, and we remain on track uh, to to make an announcement about uh, of Supreme Court the, the president's selection for a qualified and credible uh, nominee to serve on the Supreme Court je- before the end of the month.
1: For the end of the month, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki having a little fun with reporters but also making news in a way president biden says well yeah we're going to make good on the pledge to announce a choice by the end of february and of course the state of the union march 1st appears to be a very real deadline uh, for the administration to make that happen maybe that nominee will be invited to the big speech let's talk about the process though the short list remind ourselves where we are what's happened since then with Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. It's great to have you here, Greg. Everyone's been asking about uh, the interview process. The White House won't even tell us about this. This has been a a fairly leak-proof operation. Is that what you have found?
2: Yeah, they're certainly keeping their cards close to their vest. Um, That said, the three names that uh, were uh, sort of understood to be at the top of the list yeah. still seem to be the same three names, and that is Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, and mm-hmm. Federal District Judge uh, Michelle Childs. Uh, those three all have different backers and different arguments in favor of them, and uh, chances are, it seems, that by the end of the month, the president will nominate one of those three.
1: be an interesting uh, process once this goes public uh, do you think, by the way, that the president knows his pick yet? I mean, are we really in the still in the throes of deciding this, or is it more Greg about announcing it?
2: Well, you know, the president has. We know he has met with at least one of the, the those top three in a mm-hmm. in a different capacity. When Ketanji Brown Jackson was up to be no, uh, to, for nomination to uh, the federal appeals court, uh, President Biden met with her then. Uh, this was last year, so he at least knows her um, and may well know that he would be comfortable nominating her to, to the Supreme Court. Uh, it's hard to imagine that he would uh, have his mind set on somebody he hasn't met with yet, yeah. um, but, but if, it, if, it, if indeed he's thinking about her, he may well have a pretty good idea.
1: It's going to be interesting, uh, as I mentioned, once this goes public, because the introduction process begins and then, you know, all, all, all of the opposition research and everything else, the media battles uh, begin. Before we get to that point, though, there are conversations, Greg, underway between the White House and and certain uh, members of the, the Senate leadership. Uh, how much of a sense do lawmakers have about where the president might be in the process? Are they in the as in the dark as we are? <laughs>
2: seems like they might be, at least in terms of who the president's uh, uh, choice is going to be. In terms of the schedule, uh, Dick Durbin, who's the the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which would take up the nomination, has been pushing to have uh, a time frame that would let the Senate uh, confirm somebody by the Easter recess, so basically the first week of of April. Uh Um, And Democrats and Republicans seem to think that the White House is going to be moving on a pretty fast schedule.
1: Well, uh, imagining that, my goodness, to, to keep this in a compressed period of time while we're dealing with the Russia-Ukraine matter, while the president has his own domestic agenda, is is actually going to take some effort here. What kind of an apparatus within the administration is is in charge of this? Greg, is there you know is there a war room set up somewhere where there's a staff that's dedicated to just this project?
2: Yeah, well, White House Counsel Dana Remus has been heading up this, this effort. Uh, White House Chief of Staff Rodden uh, is has uh, a good deal of experience with this sort of thing in, in uh, previous Supreme Court nominations in different capacities. Uh, they have someone, uh, former Senator Doug Jones, set up to be her yeah. so-called Sherpa to take her around mm-hmm. the Senate. And no question this will be a, a, a big push by the White House.
1: Uh, Michelle Childs was apparently getting a big push uh, from Congressman Clyburn. Uh, There was a lot of writing about that at the time, of course, saying uh, suggesting that this was some sort of payback for essentially helping Joe Biden get the nomination uh, with that South Carolina primary. Uh, But the White House has gone out of its way, Greg, to say that the president will not be moved by lobbying efforts by other people calling him. And Clyburn himself said, you know, I'm not I'm not putting up any ultimatums. Do we have a sense then where how how these names stack up? Katanji Brown Jackson was the first one we heard. Leandra Kruger, Michelle Childs both came shortly afterward. Then we heard about the big push from Clyburn. If if there's no real uh, uh, sort of uh, lobbying effort like that going on, where do we think this list is is in President Biden's head?
2: Well, a couple points. First of all, Michelle Childs is the one nominee the White House has explicitly mentioned. They mentioned her when uh, her hearing to be a federal appeals court judge was put off. They, they uh, made clear that she was in the mix for a potential Supreme Court nomination. Mm-hmm. Ketanji Brown-Jackson does have kind of an ace up her sleeve, which is that she has been confirmed by the Senate yes. very recently. And that is something a number of senators have mentioned that and said that they that they know the president is aware.
1: With three of Republicans, if I remember, right?
2: Um, yes, with three Republicans voting in her favor. that That is something that can give everybody some assurance that she can get confirmed here and maybe get confirmed with a few Republican votes. Leandra Kruger, California Supreme Court justice, very well regarded, but doesn't have that particular uh, factor. And so Mm -hmm. in in some respects, she's a bit more of an unknown, at least in terms of the confirmation process.
1: Michelle Childs got Lindsey Graham. Maybe there's one Republican there, correct?
2: Uh, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott have spoken very favorably of her as well. She is from South Carolina, and so those are her home state senators.
1: A couple of things to consider as we prepare for this uh, announcement could be by the end of next week. Maybe the day before the State of the Union. We'll find out. And, of course, we'll be in touch with Greg Storr, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter, who certainly knows what he's talking about. We'll reassemble the panel, get their take on this next. Rick and Jeannie are with us on a Friday on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. it'll be a thinking weekend for President Biden, thinking and working with not only the Russia-Ukraine crisis to manage, but a State of the Union address to begin preparing for. He's got about a week to go here. And as we just discussed with Greg Storr, a Supreme Court nominee to pick. Let's reassemble the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeanne Shanzano and Rick Davis. Rick, I'm curious about the rollout here. Obviously, we can't get into Joe Biden's brain right now, but you've been part of major political announcements how do you handle this one if you're advising the president noting the environment that we're in and the speech that's coming do you get this out a couple of days before the state of the union do you hold an event with just the two of them how should it work
3: you know, it's interesting that he's taken the approach that he's taken to keep it secret, the process so far. Uh, yeah. Many presidents in the past have actually taken the opportunity to really showcase their leadership by, you know, bringing in people to interview and having them come to the White House or go to Camp David and spend a weekend. In other words, you know, the recruitment process, right? Mm-hmm. The diligence. And and this administration has chosen just to keep it bottled up, which I think is uh, fascinating, especially it, if, over the fact that they've really wanted to make a big deal about their appointing the first black woman to the federal court. Um, But then again, uh, they're going to want to take an opportunity to make it big. And I can't imagine a scenario where they would want this out before the State of the Union. I wouldn't be shocked that, that he would want whoever the nominee is to be in the hall when he mm-hmm. actually points out, here's who I'm going to put on the Supreme Court. So, so you think he announces it that night? I think that was, that's certainly what uh, other presidents have done with uh, identifying key leaders in their community, heroes of the country. Uh, this is a well-worn concept around State of the Unions. And I can't imagine that he wouldn't want to do the same thing that night. What more do you want coming out of that news other yeah. than uh, here's my pick for a historically significant uh, seat on this on the Supreme Court?
1: What do you think, Jeannie, the, the, it would be high drama in an, in an otherwise, for some people, a very long speech, half of which applies to them?
4: That's right. And one of the best nights in the year, Joe Matthew, State yes. of the Union night. <laughs> the Super love it. Bowl of
1: politics. <laughs> That's right. But if you're talking about people sitting at home, you know, look, that would, that would shake them a little bit.
4: It would shake them. You know, I, I I hate to disagree with my great friend, Rick Davis, but I would not, um, although I do it a lot, I would not uh, do it at the State of the Why? Union. And because of the politicization of the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary, it's something that Joe Biden takes very seriously. It's something the Supreme Court justices, left, right and center, do take seriously and should. Many of them, not all of them these days, they used to all attend. And the idea that he would shake showcase his nominee at that event to me would not be something that i would want to see um as a, a political scientist or a citizen wow. he may do it i think most importantly he vets his candidates very very carefully and he puts forward as somebody in the time frame he committed to who has you know credentials who, that are unassailable and sure. who is respected and who meets the uh, the uh, requirements he has laid out
1: what do you make of the secrecy uh genie that Rick points out here. We can't even get an answer out of Press Secretary Jen Psaki about whether they've all been interviewed, never mind uh, any other names that, that we haven't heard of.
4: I I do think that is curious. Um, And, and, you know, I think this is a little bit as to how the administration has been in some ways. That said, both this administration and the Trump administration have been wildly successful in terms of their appointments to the federal bench. And so if there's an area in which they have done well, it's this. So, you know, I I wouldn't question it at this point too much, but it is curious. They're keeping it under wraps. I can only imagine it's because when they do have a stand-up with whoever this woman is, is and the president they want to go big and they want to make big news on that.
1: Rick does it make you believe that this is the short list since we've heard nothing about them really from the White House seen anyone walking in or out of the West Wing that these are the three names that he is actually going to be choosing from?
3: Yeah I would think so I mean he's kind of the what you see is what you get president I, I can't imagine them throwing a curveball in here and, and by the way I mean it's not going to help their case on Capitol Hill uh, if uh, if they throw somebody in the mix who has never who's never been talked about, uh, I can't imagine it's going to please uh, senators who he is already talking to, especially Republicans, yeah. that he's going to make a solid pick and and they've got these names in their mind and he shows up with somebody different.
1: After what we saw at the the the, the hearing, the vote scheduled for earlier this week. By the way, we haven't really talked about this. Uh, it hasn't gotten much coverage since Tuesday, but there were supposed to be five nominees to the Federal Reserve getting a vote on the banking committee this week. Republicans boycotted that event. We talked to Senator Bill Haggerty here about it. Pretty high drama. Uh, it'll come back around, although I have no idea how or when. And that's another question I'll have for you guys. But is there a chance that happens, as noted in Punchbowl this morning, that happens on the Judiciary Committee when they go to vote on a Democratic Supreme Court nominee? What do you think, Rick?
3: You know, look, it's a possibility. I mean, the use of a quorum is uh, is is kind of the delaying tactic. It doesn't really kill anything, right? It's not yeah. like you've you've taken a vote. But when, when you have people like Lindsey Graham on there, like if it's Childs, he's not going to walk. Right. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, there are a number of Republicans, I would say, you know, himself, Tillis, Sass, who are on that committee, who would probably not be willing to make a stunt like that, right?
1: Yeah, what do you think, Jeannie? Is that going to become the norm? Uh, For the nominating process, you have people walking out of these hearings.
4: We've seen it on both sides. Democrats and Republicans have done this, not at the Supreme Court nominee level, but they have done it for lower level or other appointees of other of other ilk. And I do not think it would make sense for Republicans to do it, because I think, look at the reality is they have a solidly majority conservative court. This person is not going to change that. Now, if the president goes and nominates somebody who hasn't been discussed to Rick's point and, you know, who is 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 wildly to the left or who raises a red flag, you could see some of these delaying tactics. But I think the political consequences for Democrats, Republicans rather, of trying to delay this, particularly the first black woman appointed the Supreme Court in, you know, over 240 years we've been in existence. I I think the politics on that don't work well for Republicans and the stakes aren't high enough on the court Mm. at this point.
1: Quickly on the Fed, Sarah Bloom Raskin, obviously, this is uh, this is a major problem for Pat Toomey and all of the Republicans on the banking committee, they say, strip that out. We'll vote on the other four. We need more answers from Raskin. The White House says she already answered you. Rick, is this leading up to a withdrawal from the candidate? Is that actually what Republicans are angling for here? Because it doesn't appear Democrats are going to budge. Yeah,
3: I think this is the kind of thing Republicans would use as a tactic to try and get either the Biden administration to pull her back or for her to resign, saying she'll want to keep the other people waiting. Administration won't do that, though, right? You know, they, they won't, but, yeah, like, that'll be the conversation. The candidate... Hey, uh, you know, we'd really like to get this done, and, you know, you're standing in the way, so why don't you send us your resignation from the appointment? Oh. Um, and uh, and so, look, I mean, it, it just depends upon how much the Democrats want to make a cause celeb out of this. Right. It, it, you know, when they're in the middle of a in big fight inflation, uh, right. with the inflation, and uh, they depend upon this, this, this Fed to actually uh, take action, I, I don't think they want to see this prolonged. Well, Pat Toomey did say the Fed uh, can operate fine on its
1: own right now because that criticism's going in the other direction, Jeannie. The White House is saying, hey, you guys are worried about inflation. You're gumming up the works. Is this going to end up with a resignation letter? I don't want to be a distraction to the process, dot, dot, dot.
4: You know, it's so interesting because when we were first talking about these nominees to the Fed, there was some chatter that they could put out a sacrificial lamb. I don't think I or anybody else thought it was going to be Sarah Bloom Raskin. She's an, an eminently qualified so woman and individual. Fed governor. Absolutely. But given what has come out and particularly how they are using this issue with this Colorado firm that she worked for and with, you know, it could be that she decides to say, you know, I'm going to step down. It would be, you know, a blow certainly to Democrats. She's somebody who brings an enormous amount. And, and, and you know, I think really in terms of what she promised to do in this Role, I think it would be a big loss. But I wouldn't be particularly surprised if it happened unless the Democrats decide to separate these out. And we don't see any inkling of that.
1: Well, we've seen a couple of nominees flop here, Rick. I guess, you know, this could bounce back to your point on the White House at some point. You get the next inflation report and everyone's running stories on how the Federal Reserve has five, you know, technically open seats, even though uh, Jay Powell is going to continue doing his work and Lale Brainerd. Uh, But, you know, this is a little bit of a delicate situation when if if inflation is going to be the issue and the liability in a midterm election year.
3: Yeah, this is all about. Uh, president Biden. This has nothing to do with Raskin. I mean, Raskin is expendable in that regard. I mean, I hate to say it, but like, wow. you know, if you would st- if you would let someone like that stand in the way of the president getting his agenda through to be able to have his team on the the Federal Reserve, uh, I wouldn't even think twice about it. I mean, it's, it'd be as Jeannie says, it'd be great to have her on there. I'm sure she's terrific and she's served on the board before. But that is not where we are today. Mm-hmm. And today, the president needs his team in place and he needs to make a stand that's saying he's actually mo- taking action you know, and takes uh, inflation seriously and wants his team on there doing something about it. And right now, he doesn't have many talking points when it comes to inflation. Boy,
1: incredible. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, great to spend time and ideas and thoughts with both of you to end this week here on Bloomberg Sound On. February is Black History Month, and every day this month, we're celebrating significant moments in U.S. Black history, and we'll do it again now with your installment for this Friday. Here is Bloomberg's Renita Young.
0: On this day in black history in 1688, Germantown, Pennsylvania Quakers hold the first formal protest against slavery. A petition was drafted on behalf of the Germantown Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. In the document, the four men used the Bible's golden rule to argue against such inhumane treatment of their fellow man, regardless of the color of their skin. Now, the golden rule, of course, is the principle of treating others as you would want to be treated. The petition argued that every human, regardless of their belief, color, or ethnicity, has rights that should not be violated. Seeing the injustices of the slave trade, these men courageously took a stand against slavery based on their religious and moral beliefs. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio.
1: Renita, thank you. We'll see you back here... On Tuesday, make it a long weekend. Our thoughts are with the people of Ukraine. We'll have a lot to talk about when we get back here on Tuesday on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.